have three requirements here at Grace Point Church. You bring a Bible, you bring a pen or a pencil, and don't forget your brain, okay? Bring your brain. And uh, we will study this together, and hopefully, uh, as I said last week, uh, my speaking portion and your ability, your endurance to sit, we will end at the same time. And uh, we will be blessed, and we will grow in Christ together because of that. But in this passage in Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul, if you had a big theme for the book of Galatians, it would be freedom in Christ. And remember, he is answering uh, some threats to the churches in Galatia, which is in southern Asia Minor, which is present-day southern Turkey, where he had planted a number of churches some years before. And false teachers had come in, uh, false teachers from Jerusalem, and they were adding the Mosaic Law to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, and they were adding requirements from the Mosaic Law to that, and it was confusing the people, it was upsetting them, and it was polluting the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And it didn't end in uh, 50 AD, back a couple thousand years ago, it is still with us today. And if you listen carefully to radio preachers and other writings and things, you will probably start to detect that the heresy is still with us. Uh, if you read those things or listen to those things. And so we believe in salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. Christ alone, the great reformers cry. And so today we come to this passage, and freedom is a major theme. Remember in chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And he's referring to the burden of the law. The yoke of slavery was slavery to the law. And to uh, in our day and age, we're not so worried about the Mosaic law, but the lists of do's and don'ts which we depend upon to say we're good Christians. When in, when in everything, Christ paid it all. Uh, we do not add or subtract from our salvation. And so the Apostle Paul warns him there. And then later on in chapter 5, in verse 13, he says, For you were called the freedom brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And so he's addressing the two aberrations of Christianity. One is legalism. We call it the ditch of legalism. And he's warning them about getting under the bondage of the law, again, as the false teachers were trying or the extreme to that, the response to that is uh, the aberrant response of licentiousness, which means living without any moral restraints. And, of course, that's the accusation of every church that teaches and preaches that you're saved by grace alone, is that how do you keep people in line? Well, that's not our job. The job of the Holy Spirit is to keep us in line, to keep us walking by the Spirit. But those two aberrations of the gospel are the dangers. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he is applying the truth of the gospel of grace. He has made the doctrinal defense of it in chapters 3 and 4. And here in 5 and 6, he goes from the doctrinal to the applicational, and he's applying it how we are to walk in the Spirit, how we are to live in this freedom that Christ grants us in Jesus Christ. So these Galatian churches had fallen under the spell of false teachers. And as you go around the landscape of Christendom today, around the world, there are plenty of false teachers. And you need to be aware of that and recognize that, bottom line, what are they teaching you about the gospel of Jesus Christ? If it's anything Christ plus, you're in trouble in the fact that that is a heretical gospel. And so today I wanted to back up, but before I do, let us pray as we open God's word together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you uh, that you are in heaven, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and that, Lord Jesus, you have saved us. And I ask this morning that you would grant to us, according to the riches of glory, to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner man, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we would be rooted and grounded in love, and that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and that we would be filled up with all the fullness of God this morning. Amen and amen. Well, what is the way to Christian freedom? Uh, We touched on it last week, but there are some key elements that we have to look at again, uh, beginning in verse 16, where he says, but you must walk by the Spirit. The bookend of that passage, of that paragraph, is found in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And in the middle there, in verse 24, he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are the two keys to this Christian life. These are the two keys to walking in victory or freedom in Jesus Christ. We were saved by grace, called justification. We look forward to our glorification where we will be in heaven. We will not be in the very presence of sin. We were saved from the penalty of sin. In this middle part, we're being saved from the very power of sin, what we call sanctification. But he says we must crucify the flesh in verse 24. Now, that is an interesting statement, and some have equated that with Galatians 2.20. Look at Galatians 2.20. Back a page uh, with me, please. And in Galatians 2.20, he says something similar, if I can find. Somebody took 2.20 out of my Bible here. Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is a positional statement. That is our position from God's viewpoint. But here it is something different where we are called upon to participate, to act on this crucifying of the flesh. Now, we are not very familiar with crucifixion except what we read historically and in our Bible. But it was a matter of capital punishment in the Greco-Roman world. It was the extreme form of capital punishment. And the crucifixion in the flesh described here in chapter 5, verse 24, is not something that's done to us, but it's something that is done by us, by the believer in Jesus Christ. And so this is a deliberate putting to death of our flesh is what he's talking about. Paul, the Apostle Paul here, borrows the image of crucifixion from, of course, what Christ went through, what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went through. Jesus Christ in Mark 8, 34 says, If a man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this was a vivid picture of self-denial. I've said before, and we've talked about this flesh before, and of course the flesh is the law system. It is our desires. It's either legalism or licentiousness. It is not true freedom in Christ. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that this execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wafered, wafered self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. This was Paul's graphic description of repentance, of repentance. 
Changing my mind to change my direction is a very simple definition of repentance. It's at 180 degree. I've been going this way. I'm going to turn and go the other way with God's grace and his help. The fact that we crucify our own flesh is very significant in this passage. It's about repentance. And there are three things we need to understand about crucifixion. First of all, Christ's, the Christian's rejection of his old nature is to be pitiless. We are not to take pity upon ourselves, which is so easy to do. Crucifixion in the Greco-Roman world was not a pleasant form of execution, nor was it administered to nice and refined people. It was reserved for the worst criminals of the day, and that's why it was so shameful for Christ to be crucified on a cross. If, therefore, we are to crucify our flesh, it is plain that the flesh is not something respectable or to be treated with courtesy and deference, but it is something so evil that it deserves no better fate than to be crucified. Yes, we are crucified positionally with Christ, as it said in chapter 2, verse 20, and also in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. But here, this is an act that we do. This is an act of repentance, and this should be pitiless. No pity for our flesh. Secondly, our rejection of our old nature will be painful. This is not a popular subject. But crucifixion is painful. It was a form of execution, as Thayer's Greek-English lexicon said, attended by intense pain. And which of us does not know the inner pain, the conflict, when the fleeting pleasures of sin appeal to us? That's a battle every day that each of us faces. Thirdly, our rejection of our old nature is to be precise or decisive. Although death by uh, crucifixion was a lingering death, it was a certain death. Criminals who were nailed to the cross did not survive. They did not survive. One commentator named John Brown writes this, Crucifixion produced death not suddenly but gradually. True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh, that is, our sin nature, while we live on this earth, but they have fixed it to the cross, and they are determined to keep it there till it expires, unquote. Now, those who belong to Christ, Paul says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The Greek verb is in the aorist tense, which basically means that it indicates that it's something we did decisively, precisely at the moment of conversion. When you think about if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you may not remember the exact point, like I can't, of my salvation, although I do know that it involved repentance afterwards especially, when I repented of my sins. When we come to Jesus Christ, we crucified everything we knew to be wrong. And uh, we took our old self-centered nature, all its passions and desires, and we nailed it to the cross. We did that in the fact of accepting Christ as Savior. It was decisive as crucifixion is. And so we need to remember this. The secret of holy living, the secret of victorious Christian living, lies in the degree and decisiveness of our repentance. It's quite graphic. I was uh, thinking about this, of our flesh nailed to a cross. And we need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, 
We must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine, consider whether we are going to live in it or not. We have declared war on that. We are not going to resume our negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We're not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to pull out the nails, if you will. So that is crucifixion of the flesh that he is calling us to. And then we must walk in the spirit. Now, this attitude we are to adopt towards the Holy Spirit is described in two ways. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And we talk a lot about the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the leading is a passive example because God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, works on us as the objects of his love, and he is leading us day by day, moment by moment. We may not sense it. We may not understand it. But if we're in his word, if we're believers in Christ, his Holy Spirit is leading us in the Christian life. The verb is in the continuous present tense. In other words, this is ongoing. This doesn't just happen once in time and then stop. There is a clear distinction between being led in the Spirit in verse 18 here and walking in the Spirit that we find down in verse 25. Uh, The latter verb is active. In other words, we do the walking. Nobody else walks for us. We are called to walk in the Spirit. The Spirit leads us. But we have to walk. We have to follow. And that means this lifestyle. The picture here of being led by the Spirit, uh, that verb there, the verb is, is picturing like a farmer leading cattle or herding cattle or a, a shepherd leading sheep or of soldiers taking a prisoner to court, to court or to prison or of uh, the picture of the wind driving a sailing ship. It's used metaphorically all through Scripture. Uh, But the Holy Spirit takes the initiative. He asserts his desires against our flesh, and he leads us and guides us. The Apostle Paul is telling us this is how uh, the beginning point of walking in the Spirit is recognizing that the Holy Spirit leads us, but then we actively and purposefully follow. We walk as well. That first uh, word, walk, in verse 16 is the regular verb for just walking physically. But here in verse 25, and some of the, some of the versions capture it. Uh, in my version, it still uses the, the English word walk, but it's a completely different Greek word. And it means to fall in line with. It means to be drawn up in a line, uh, to be in line with. And we are to walk in line with Abraham's footprints, if you will. We see that in Romans 4. It describes Christians who walk in line with the position they have attained in Philippians 3. Uh, or the truth of the gospel here in Galatians 6. Uh, There's a standard, there's a principle that is being followed that the Holy Spirit will lead us. So therefore, uh, the Apostle Paul is calling us to crucify the flesh, repudiating what we know to be wrong, and walk by the Spirit, setting ourselves to follow what we know to be right. This is seen in our whole way of life. Our leisure uh, pursuits, Uh, The books we read, the friendships we make, above all, what the older uh, authors call the diligent use of the means of grace. I like that. The diligent use of the means of grace. That is a disciplined practice of reading scripture, of prayer, of being with other believers, of associating with the church, of being in public worship, to occupy ourselves with spiritual things. That is the means of grace. 
That is when the fruit of the Spirit, remember in this paragraph from 16 to 24, he contrasts the work, the deeds of the flesh, and there's some 15 of them, and it's not an exhaustive list, but then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is produced by the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh are produced by the sin nature. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so we must leave the flesh securely nailed, if you will, to the cross because that's where it belongs. And so to walk by the Spirit uh, means that the flesh is crucified, that we are led by the Spirit, and we purposefully partake in the means of grace. Well, we come to this passage uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, or the end of chapter 5, this walking in Christian victory. And it's very simple in verses 25 and 26. It's how, we're, uh, how we are not to treat one another. Uh, reading a, a New Testament book like uh, Galatians, it's like hearing only one end of the telephone conversation. Paul has his back to us, and he's speaking to the Galatian churches. We only hear his end of the conversation. But from that conversation, we can extrapolate and start understanding what the issue was going on in Galatians, as we've seen already. But we also know that the legalism that was invading the churches in Galatia was causing great upheaval and mistreatment of one another. Because here in chapter 5, he refers to it time and time again. And here at the end of chapter 5, he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. We are to not walk in the flesh. We are to walk in the spirit. And walking in the flesh results in these things. Desirous of vainglory, the King James uh, tells us, not becoming boastful, not provoking one another, and not, and not to envy one another. There's two flaws in the human character that are surfaced in this verse, superiority and inferiority. Superiority says, I'm better than you are, and I'll prove it. On the other hand, inferiority inferiority thinks you're better than I am and I will resent it. So two flaws in the human character. Uh, So we are not to treat each other like that. In verses 1 through 5, then the Apostle Paul continues to apply walking in the Spirit, and this is how we are to treat one another in the Spirit if we are to overcome the flesh. He says in verse 1, brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking out for yourself that you too will not be tempted. And so it's a restoration of a sinning brother or sister in Christ, overtaken in a fault, I think the King James has. But it's the picture of drifting away. It's like a ship that comes unmoored and is floating away. And that's what a Christian who is out of fellowship with The Holy Spirit, out of fellowship with other believers, falls into this trespass. And so the one who is to restore him is the spiritual one. And, of course, we go back in the context, and it's the one who the Holy Spirit is working through, the one who is walking by the Spirit. And that's why it is so key and so crucial for the leaders in the church, the elders and the deacons, to walk in the Holy Spirit, to uh, have those character qualities that Paul relates to us in, in Timothy and Titus. And so it's to be done with a gentle spirit. This is that, uh, that same word that's used of the part of fruit of the spirit, meekness or gentleness. Uh, gentleness uh, removes the need to compete. It removes hostility towards others. A gentle person is characterized three ways, submission to God, teachable in their spirit, and considerate of others. 
And the goal is to restore to fellowship. And there in that verse where it says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, that word has a two-pronged meaning. It means it's a medical term, which means mending a broken bone or setting a broken bone. And if any of you have had a broken bone, you understand what it means to have it mended and put back together. And it takes time, doesn't it? It takes time for the healing process. The other meaning comes out of, uh, uh, out of the, the, the seafaring language, and it means to mend the nets, like when uh, the fishermen would come back in and they would repair their nets. That's the idea of restoring one. And so we're told in verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens, bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? That we love one another. The whole Old Testament law is summed up in loving God and loving others. So bear one another's burdens. And here the word for burdens, if you've been paying attention in this paragraph, you know that at verse 5 it says each one will bear his own load, and it seems contradictory. Bear one another's burdens, but bear my own. Well, there are two different words that are used here. The one here in verse 2 is excessive, heavy, crushing loads that none of us could carry. Believers are to help one another bear those burdens. Uh, it has a special reference to heavy, oppressive weight of temptation, spiritual failure, those adversities that come into our lives. We need one another for those things. And the result is the fulfillment of the law of Christ. You know, one thing I've realized is if we're going to bear one another's burdens, then something that I'm doing I has to be laid aside. Something you're doing has to be laid aside because it takes time and proximity to bear somebody else's heavy, crushing load. It takes time and proximity, and we don't want to miss out on the blessing. And how do we do this? In verse 3, he warns us to abandon pride or conceit. In verse 3, he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There is danger in that, uh, the result of deceiving ourselves. When I worked uh, operating heavy equipment in forest road construction, uh, there was a new guy who was hired, and he was running a piece of heavy equipment. And uh, it wasn't long before we nicknamed him, nicknamed him Mr. America because he always had a big Mr. America hat on and uh, T-shirts that had lots of names and stuff on them and big belt buckle and stuff. And he just he looked like Mr. America, and he always... Uh, had everything, you know, you could bring up something and he'd already done it, already accomplished it. He was full of pride. And that's why we called him Mr. America. And so abandon pride and conceit. In verse 4, avoid comparison with others. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another each one of us examines this as self-evaluation, not evaluating other people, but our own selves and how we're growing in the Christian life and boasting in what God has done in our lives as we look over our story and not because of others. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're full of sinful pride. Uh, and then verse 5, bear our own loads. And that's the different word where it says, for each one will bear his own load. That's a different word, and it means like a soldier's pack. A soldier's pack. Each individual is responsible to bear his own load. And it's a future tense verb. And there's no contradiction between verse 2 and verse 5. Each man will bear his own load. And it's referring to ultimately before, where we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And this is not to judge our salvation. This is to judge our works in this life and how we lived out the Christian life. Uh, The great white throne of judgment is for the unsaved, where they will be cast into the lake of fire. And the Bema seat, this is called the Bema seat. It was a judgment seat of our works. We find it in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Central passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and Romans 14, 10 that each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our works will be tested. Will they be wood, hay, or stubble, which are burned up, or gold and precious stones and precious metals? And nobody can carry that pack for me, and I can't carry that pack for you. Only the individual can pack their own pack when they meet Christ face to face. And so fulfilling the law of Christ requires the Holy Spirit's power for sacrificial service to one another. And so remember that we bear one another's burdens, but then we carry our own also. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage of scripture. We've covered a lot of ground, and I pray, Lord, that the things that you want us to remember would come back 